Welcome back, or if it's your first time here, then thank you for joining us. This is the doula's guide to preparing for your birth with me, Meg, also known as the Dungaree Doula. It's the podcast where we talk about all things pregnancy, birth and parenting. My aim is to share unbiased information alongside a bit of friendly chit chat to ensure that you head into parenthood feeling confident and excited for what's to come. If you're new to the podcast and would like to know more about me, then go and check out the very first episode for a little introduction and a big chat on hypnobirthing, and then the following episodes for some great birth and parenting preparation. If you love the podcast, you can now leave me a little tip to say thank you via buy me a coffee. The link is in the show notes and a huge thank you in advance if you choose to do this. The podcast is something that I research, write, record and edit completely alone and I'm completely unpaid for it. So the tips that come in from those of you who have found it useful are truly, truly appreciated. Before we begin, I also want to remind you that I now have two pre-recorded online courses. The first is a full antenatal education and hypnobirthing course. You can sign up to it and start working through it right away in your own time. There are over 30 modules to work through, each made up of video content. And then there's bonuses in every single section, such as PDF downloads, hypnobirthing MP3 tracks, relaxation tracks, journaling prompts, birth plan templates, birth partner checklists, and so much more. It's only £37, which is an absolute steal, but to celebrate the launch of season two, you can now use the code PODCAST for 20% off. Just click the link in the show notes or head to my website, which is thedungaredoula.co.uk and head to the online course page. Whilst you're over there, you'll see the even newer Hypnobirthing Essentials course, which as it sounds is a condensed version, still pre-recorded, but it's for those of you who are maybe at the end of your pregnancies, don't have much time... Those who have done antenatal education previously and want hypnobirthing on top. Maybe those of you who are pregnant for a second, third or fourth time and want a refresher. Or maybe you just want a cheaper option. So if any of those sound like you, head to the same place and click on hypnobirthing essentials. It's only £20, so again, really great value. And does come with the MP3s, the video content, the PDF downloads and lots of other extras too. I hope that you love it. Go and treat yourself if you're expecting your baby in 2024. But now... Let's get into the episode. So today I thought we would have a little chat about being labelled high risk during pregnancy. Um, It's very much just going to be me talking about, you know, the labels that are given, a bit of chat about the care that is given and some advice for moving through your appointments and things like that if you are high risk. So I have like a little bit of beef with the high risk label. I don't really like it. I feel like I just feel like there's surely got to be a better way of categorising people. We say, you know, people are low risk or high risk and we don't distinguish between what high risk actually means. And it's incredibly nuanced. I mean, it, it, it could be that, you know, you've got a high BMI or it could be something like you have a debilitating medical condition. And there's no in between for what that means. Everyone's just lumped under this high risk umbrella. I feel like really we should be labelled as low risk or even lower risk, <laughs> something like that. The reason I don't like the high risk label is because I think that it just plants that fear early that your pregnancy is risky. And I don't think that that's helpful. I don't think that's conducive to a healthy pregnancy to say to somebody you're high risk, you're going to need a lot of extra help, you're going to need us to be there every step of the way. And you know, for some people that is going to be true. For some people, they are going to need extra help every single step of the way. And for those people, thank God we have that help. Absolutely 
percent thank god we have that help but I think where like I said where the lines get blurred is where people who are having healthy pregnancies are then still given this high-risk label it's a very yeah it's a very nuanced topic and I feel like there should be different ways to categorize people rather than just low risk or high risk you should be categorized by whatever thing it is that they think is risky you should be sat down and you should be given you know the benefits and the risks and the pros and the cons of the different options and the different things that they can do to help you. And then you should be able to make a decision based on that, whether you want to proceed as a high risk pregnancy or as a low risk pregnancy, in my opinion, anyway. So the nice guidelines um, define a high risk pregnancy as follows. A pregnancy is high risk when the likelihood of an adverse outcome for the woman or the baby is greater than that of the normal population. A labour is high risk when the likelihood of an adverse outcome related to labour for the woman or the baby is greater than that of the normal population. But what this doesn't mention is that often for many people with a high risk pregnancy, often that risk of an adverse outcome is higher than within the normal population, but by such a tiny amount. So like I said, for some people, it is, it's going to be incredibly risky. But for a lot of these things that we're categorising as high risk, the risk of an adverse outcome is so small so 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 small it's like a tiny increase and even when you hear people like say things like oh your risk of x y or z happening doubles or triples or you know is a big amount what they're actually talking about is that it doubles you know from the risk of something happening by 0.1 percent to 0.15 percent it's it's generally like incremental it's so small and not always but very often and you know for some that is not worth the stress or the worry at all of having that high risk label plastered all over their notes and that's why I said I feel like people who do have a risk factor at the beginning of their pregnancy should just sit down and just have an open and honest conversation where someone says this is the actual risk factor that we are giving you do you want to proceed with these extra consultant appointments with these extra scans with these extra whatever it is they're offering or do you want to be classed as a low-risk pregnancy and you should be able to make that choice because yeah we're just sort of it's not explained to us we're just told you have this thing that means you're high risk that means you need all this extra help during your pregnancy and that means you're at greater risk of all of these things happening and that's not good and you know it's not there's there's no in between there's no well, actually, this is what it says. You might be slightly more at risk of this one thing. Would you like us to do anything about it or would you not? <laughs> so high risk, you know, like I said, it could be because of a multitude of things. It could be because of medical conditions. It could be to do with, you know, a lifelong medical condition that you've had that is incredibly risky. It could be to do with something to do with your baby, that your baby is poorly or something like that. It could be to do with your age your weight it could be to do with the fact that you have diabetes or gestational diabetes that you're having a v-back so a vaginal birth after having a cesarean it could be that you're having twins or triplets you have a high bmi high blood pressure you're having an ibf pregnancy your baby is large your baby is small um your fluid levels are too high or too low there are so many things and all of those all of those things that I just listed, I mean, that doesn't even scratch the surface of what is classed as a high-risk pregnancy, but all of those things have completely different levels of risk, completely different levels of risk. So putting everyone under the same umbrella is tricky. 
And then even people within those same risk factors will have different outcomes. Like giving this blanket statement, again, is even more tricky because, for example, if you think about the high BMI, people with high BMI can be perfectly healthy. Like we know BMI is not a reflection of health in the majority of people, but we're saying that people with a high BMI, a lot of trusts are saying this, will be a high risk and need consultant care and consultant-led care. When actually there's going to be people with a high BMI who are a lot healthier than people who have BMI within the normal range. But people within the normal range are not being given this label. People with a high BMI are. So it's really tricky. But then, like, but there will be some people within the high BMI category who probably do need a little bit of extra help, just like there will be people within the range of normal BMI. I know normal and high is not a nice way to talk about it. That's just the way that it is defined, so I'm using the technical terms. Um, people within the normal range of BMI who do need extra help but are not getting it because it's not being realised because they've just gone, oh, you must be healthy, your BMI is in the normal, quote, normal range, but your BMI is in the high range, so you definitely need help because you're more at risk of this X, Y or Z happening. Um, so we're putting people under this umbrella and we're not taking a full picture look at their actual health. We're just pointing out the so-called risk factor. So it's really tricky and I think that, yeah, we're going to talk about it more in a minute, but if you've been put under this category of high risk for something that you do not feel is that risky, then you're well within your rights to, you know, to question it. And yeah, we'll come and talk about that in a minute. Um, and yeah, so what I was saying is putting everyone under this sort of same umbrella, um, even within the same risk factor, for example, like I said, people with high BMI, putting them all under this risk factor of you've got a high BMI, so you're high risk is tricky because they, these risk factors will affect some more than they affect others. And often the guidance, it can contradict itself anyway. So a good example of this is when we talk about a suspected large baby. So this is a risk factor. You will be classed as having a high-risk pregnancy if your baby is suspected to be large for, gestas large for gestational age. Um, and two of their main concerns with babies who are large for gestational age is um, you having a shoulder dystocia or a postpartum hemorrhage, so like during the birth, after the birth. Um, and more often than not, their recommendation is to induce, right? You're having a large baby, we need to induce you. But induction itself increases the risk of shoulder dystocia and postpartum hemorrhage. So why is this the recommendation? It, it, it makes... Not much sense. It's very contradictory. You know, they're saying your baby's going to be big. That increases your risk for shoulder dystocia and PPH. We need to induce you. Not telling you that the induction itself increases the risk further of shoulder dystocia and postpartum hemorrhage. And your baby might be big. Remember, they don't actually know until your baby is born because scanning isn't very accurate in the third trimester. There's a, there's a window of 15% inaccuracy and that's widely accepted by trust. Like they will say to you, 15% inaccuracy, which is a lot when we're talking about pounds and ounces, but actually research suggests it's up to 50% inaccurate. Um, so your baby might be big. We don't know that. And that does increase the chance of you experiencing shoulder dystocia and postpartum hemorrhage by a very, very small amount. But it is a risk. It does increase it slightly by a very small amount. But there's lots of other things that can also cause shoulder dystocia and postpartum hemorrhage. So then they're saying, but let's induce you and increase that risk even further. It doesn't make much sense. I understand that part of the rationale is to, you know, induce before baby gets even bigger 
to try and negate the risk further. But if baby is already big, we don't know that letting them get any bigger makes it any more risky. And large gestational age baby is a large gestational age baby, regardless of how big they are. People have been pushing out, you know, big chunky bambinos with no problem for a very long time, with no bloody idea. <laughs> like you can give birth to a big baby. You don't know if you're having a big baby until they've been born. And a lot of these things are manageable as well. Shoulder dystocia, it can be incredibly serious, but midwives are highly trained to spot it and to deal with it. And the same with postpartum hemorrhage. They're trained to spot it, they're trained to deal with it. So it, some of the guidance, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't always make logical sense that, you know, what they're trying to prevent, they're making more likely to happen. <laughs> with the thing that they're trying to fix it. So that's just one example. One example where policy around a high-risk condition doesn't make the most sense and leads me on to one of the main things that I wanted to talk about. This will be sort of the bulk of the podcast, which is just questioning and decision-making when you're high-risk. Um, I feel like that's just, that's what I wanted to talk about today is because I've had experiences with quite a few clients over the past couple of months who have been told you're high risk and you need to do this thing and there's been no question about it they've not been informed enough to make a decision and obviously they've gone away and they've spoken to me about it and they've realized that you know they can ask questions about it and stuff like that but if they didn't have that they would have just blindly accepted because they've been told you're high risk you need to do this you're high risk you need to take this medication for example, things like that. So I think it's, I just wanted to put out this podcast basically to remind you about decision-making and questioning and to talk about that specifically in relation to high risk. So as I mentioned earlier, it, it can be really difficult to navigate a high-risk pregnancy. There can be that element of fear. And I've, I've heard from clients as well that it can almost put a dampener on their pregnancies or make them feel like, you know, that they're not doing a good job for their babies or that their body isn't doing a very good job. And I just wanted to quickly just mention here that, that if that is you, then I am sending you so much love and just reminding you that that is not true. You are just as worthy of growing your baby and experiencing pregnancy as anyone else who has managed to judge the high risk label and the extra scans and appointments. Like you deserve to enjoy your pregnancy just as much, if not more, just as much as anybody else. Like you haven't done anything wrong to end up with this label. It is, it's just that. It is a label that somebody else has put on you and it is not a negative reflection on yourself. So I just wanted to state that there, that if it is causing you stress or fear or anything like that, then I am thinking of you, I am sending you love and I really hope that it doesn't, that it doesn't cause any further stress and it doesn't cause any further hassle and that you can move through your pregnancy just with a sense of peace I want you to be able to enjoy it it's it's not fair that somebody is putting this on you but it is like I said it is not a reflection on you and for some for some it is just you know it's a factual statement I am pregnant and I have a high BMI and but for others I know that it can be more complex it can be you know maybe another another point in a long and complex medical history so whatever you are going through I hope that you're not feeling too down about it you're not feeling too stressed about it with the things that are being said to you or recommendations or things like that I really really hope that you are receiving respectful person-centered care from people who actually sit down and give you the time of day to talk things through with you and explain why things are being recommended because if you are not then that is not on and 
you deserve nothing less than that. And if you are getting less than that, then keep listening and I will give you some advice (laughs) on not settling for less than you deserve. But yeah, if you are going through a high-risk pregnancy, um, I know that it, it, it can be incredibly difficult for some people. And I just wanted to put that sort of disclaimer in there, but I'm not saying, you know, oh, moving through a high-risk pregnancy is bullshit and you shouldn't have to deal with it and don't let anyone treat you badly because it's it's not that simple. It's complex, isn't it? People have complex relationships with their bodies and things like that. And I just, yeah, I wanted to mention that if you are moving through that, then give yourself some grace and remind yourself that you're doing an amazing job. So I'll give you some advice in a second. But before we get into that, I just want to talk a bit about the NICE guidelines and some things that keep I keep hearing happening at the moment. So mentioned the NICE guidelines earlier and they have some guidance which is titled intrapartum care for women with existing medical conditions or obstetric complications and their babies. And this guidance, I'll put it in the show notes, it talks a lot about a lot of different things. So it covers things like high BMI, um, women with heart disease, large gestational age babies, small gestational age babies, VBACs, uh, labour after 42 weeks of pregnancy, women with asthma, bleeding disorder, kidney disease, like it covers so much, so much stuff, so many things that come under this high-risk umbrella, it's a real mixed bag, but this guidance is quite eye-opening, because this guidance is what hospital policy is based on, right, but a lot of it is not happening in practice, so for example, in the section that talks about labour after 42 weeks of pregnancy, so you move to being a high-risk pregnancy, so you could have been low-risk your entire pregnancy but if you get past 42 weeks they'll stick a high risk label on you and when it talks about 42 weeks of pregnancy onwards it says the committee agreed that continuous cardiotography which is a ctg so continuous monitoring during labor is what they mean so when when you go into labor um if you have a high risk pregnancy they will recommend ctg monitoring where they wrap like bands and pads around your bump so they have a constant trace of listening into baby um so when they're talking about 42 weeks of pregnancy it says the committee agreed that continuous ctg um should be offered for all women in labor after 42 weeks but literally the line before that says No evidence was found for monitoring in labour after 42 weeks of pregnancy, so the committee made the recommendation based on their knowledge and experience. So there's no evidence to say that having a CTG after 42 weeks of pregnancy is safer, but they've made this recommendation anyway. And then similarly, it says in the section regarding VBAC, so vaginal birth after caesarean. So that's another high risk label people get. If you've had a caesarean in a first pregnancy and then you want to have a vaginal birth, you're given a high risk label. And in this section, it says the committee was aware that continuous CTG is usually advised for women in labour who have had a previous caesarean. However, it is uncertain whether continuous CTG in these circumstances allows risk to be identified sooner than if intermittent auscultation is used. So intermittent, intermittent auscultation is where they listen into your baby. I mean, it varies by trust, but it's usually every 15 minutes. They use a little Doppler like they do in your midwife appointments and they listen in every 15 minutes. So uncertain whether CTG allows risk to be identified sooner, but they're still recommending it. And the same with after 42 weeks. There's no evidence to say that it's safer, but they're still recommending it. So these recommendations for continuous monitoring um, are being given to people with a wide range of risk factors, but there's no evidence to suggest that there are any benefits. Um, There are loads of examples, but 
yeah, we don't know. And then in that same guidance, it says there is no evidence that continuous cardiotography improves outcomes compared with intermittent auscultation. So again, it just reiterates it. And the reason I bring up this specific example is because it's one that I hear all the time from people who are high risk. People are constantly with that high risk label told that they must bear from the labor ward because they need to have continuous monitoring. And this can be really damning for a lot of labors. Like when you have CTG, it requires you to be hooked up to these machines for your entire labor. And this can immobilize you. Like they often will say, we'll try and facilitate you being able to stay active. But in practice, it's really tricky because the minute you start moving around, the wires and the pads slip off. So they can't get a good trace and then they get stressed out and then it's heavily pushed for you to stay on the bed, which is not always the optimal position for giving birth. And, you know, it decreases space in the pelvis. It means your baby has to work against gravity to get down and out of the birth canal. It increases the risk of tearing, increases the risk of PPH and things like that. It can make the whole labour feel more painful. So CTG, you know, can have a negative effect on the labour. There's no evidence to suggest that it improves outcomes, but it's still being recommended constantly. And then if that does happen, if say you try and move around during your labour, they'll then might offer what's called a fetal scalp electrode, which is often described as a little clip, but it's not a screw, a little clip, it's a screw. Like it's they go they put it into your cervix and they screw it into your baby's head. It's not something I want to talk about now because it's something that it needs its whole episode. Um, but it's something that is commonly seen in those labels at high risk. And it just frustrates me because it's never explained. And for some people, you know, CTG might be the best thing. I'm not against CTG when I'm talking about all of these things and I'm telling you that you can question them or decline them. It's not because I'm against them. It's not because I think they don't exist. It's just that I think we should be informed about them. So, you know, it's, it's going to be the best thing for some people. But for a lot of people, it's actually not improving outcomes at all. And there's quite a lot of research out there in line with what those guidance said about how, you know, there's no evidence that CTG improves outcomes compared with intermittent auscultation. And most recently, um, in 2023, some like research came out, large scale research, I will link it in the um, show notes. And that research states that CTG is a tool with good sensitivity, but poor specificity <laughs> so hard to say that specific specificity why can't I pronounce well we know why I can't pronounce anything we've discussed this in previous episodes but it basically specifically is poor in detecting fetal hypoxia and it has a false positive rate in predicting CP which is what it was brought in for so if you don't know CTG, CTG was brought in to predict cerebral palsy so cp so it has a false positive rate in predicting cp approximately 99 percent of the time so what this means is 99 percent of ctg traces which suggests that the baby is stressed and may need to be born more quickly are incorrect and the babies are not actually stressed at all the babies are fine 99 percent of the time the 99 percent of the time it has a false positive in detecting fetal hypoxia which is what it is used for <laughs> so that's just pretty bonkers right 99% of the time so this research also found that intrapartum ctg so intrapartum means during birth intrapartum ctg is associated with increased cesarean section and operative vaginal deliveries and these lead to higher risk of morbidity and mortality for both mother and fetus without reducing the incident of neonatal neurological injuries which is what they're there for so ctg is not evidence-based and, you know, we're, we're possibly slightly going off on a tangent here now. Um, I will do a full episode on monitoring during labour at some point in the future. 
But to bring it back to the point I was making is that so many things are offered to people who are having high-risk pregnancies that are not 100% evidence-based. And when you do deep dive on them, you might choose to not proceed with the thing that is being recommended. And you might not, you might, you might actually, you might want that reassurance. You might want CTG. It might well be the best option for you. But for a lot of people, it's not the safest option, which produces the safest outcome. So it's just, I just use that there as a very good example of how high-risk pregnancies are often led down a track that is not always supported by evidence or that is not always supportive of the best outcomes for you and your baby just because you've been stuck with this label um and that yeah that leads me on to that the main point I wanted to make in this episode around questioning around questioning the care that you receive and around your rights and again I hope this doesn't sound anti-medical professional anti-medical intervention or anything like that because I don't think we should be declining everything. I don't think we should all be running off and having free births. <laughs> like, I don't, that's not going to be right for everybody. Some of us need medical intervention. Some of us want medical intervention. Some of us really desperately need extra care and actually have to fight for it, which is bonkers as well, because so much unnecessary intervention is being pushed on people that the people who actually want it, that are asking for it, and not being given it. I keep hearing stories on the flip side of people being pushed into inductions of other people asking for cesareans and not being granted them or having to really fight. And it blows my mind because the people who want them absolutely deserve them. <laughs> but it's difficult on both sides. It's it's insane. But I'm just trying to make the point that it is incredibly nuanced. And if you have this high risk label, it's well worth knowing your rights. Because in my experience, yeah, people are not getting person-centered care and not being given you know, decisions to make. They're simply being told. Like they're being told they're going to do something. It's not It's not given as a, do you want to do this? It's just that you will do this. And I've had this in so many clients recently. Um, most recently, I've had a couple of clients being given medication, prescribed for them, without being asked if they want it, or even told what it is for. Like I've had two clients literally within the last couple of weeks who have both been prescribed completely different medication. They've got completely different risk labels. Neither of them had a single clue what this prescription was for. They were just given it, told to pick it up, written on their notes that they need to take it until postpartum. No idea what either of those things were for. I've had others that have been told they will be induced. Others told that they can't have a home birth. You can't just tell someone that you will induce them. You have to give informed consent for an induction. You can't just be told, we will induce you. That's not, that's not how it works. <laughs> but yeah, none of these things are legal. <laughs> you have to get informed consent for any procedure, for any medication, for anything that happens to you. You have to give informed consent. You can't give informed consent if you're just told to do something. That's not how informed consent works. Informed consent works because you give consent that you feel informed about. So you agree. So someone says... We would recommend in this instance an induction. These are the pros of the induction. These are the cons of the induction. This is the research it is based on. This is how it relates to your circumstances. How do you feel about that? And then you use all of that information to either consent to it or to decline from it. No one can say to you, we will induce you. I mean, they are doing that, but they shouldn't. Legally, they shouldn't be doing that. So my advice to get to the point... <laughs> at the very end of the podcast we will get there my advice for if any of these things happen to you if if you are given a high-risk label and you're told you can't have a home birth or you're told you will be induced on this date or you're given some medication or you're told you have to go for extra scans or whatever it is always ask 
why. So simple. Always ask why. Why are you recommending this procedure? Why are you prescribing this medication? Why do you want me to go for extra scans, extra blood pressure readings, extra monitoring, whatever it is? Ask why. Unless you know you're 100% comfortable that you already know why and you're happy for it to happen, then you don't have to. I feel like that's self-explanatory. If you have even an inkling of doubt about why something is being recommended, why? Why do you want this to happen? And if you're not satisfied with the answer they give, why do I need to go for extra blood pressure reasons? Because your BMI is too high. Yes, but I need more than that. Why is that the recommendation? What, what is the outcome of this blood pressure reading going to show me? How is it going to impact my pregnancy and my birth? And then when you've got your why, question further. So why do you want me to take the glucose tolerance test? Because you have X, Y or Z risk factor. But why? Why does that require me to take an uncomfortable test? Please, could you give me more information on what the test entails? What are the benefits of me doing the risk? What are the risks of me doing the risk? What are the risks of me finding out I have it? How will that impact the rest of my pregnancy if it comes back and it is positive? How will that impact my birth choices? How will that impact what you recommend going forward? And this is where people can feel like a nuisance and don't want to do this because we're British and we're like, we've got to be polite and we all just have like this weird thing. Well, it's not a weird thing. We've all got this thing where we feel like we're so in debt to the NHS that we can't question anyone who works for them. And the NHS is insanely brilliant like thank god for the nhs so many members of my family work for the nhs it is incredible that we have like free at point of access healthcare but you can question the people who work within it they are people too they're not like magical gods they're people too you're allowed to ask them questions <laughs> so you can feel like you're a nuisance but you shouldn't your pregnancy and your birth is impacted it makes no difference to them if you accept or decline they're just following policy makes no difference to them but it could make the world of difference to you, to your baby, to your birth, and how you come out of that experience can impact your entire life. So it is important that, you know, you're not feeling like a nuisance for wanting to find out more, but you're actually making informed decisions that feel right for you. So if you are really struggling with this, take someone with you, just take someone to your appointments that can advocate for you, that can, you know, pat you on the knee and be like, yeah, well done. Someone that can ask for you. If you don't want to ask, get someone to ask. Take your birth partner, take your mum, take a friend, take a doula, like we'll do this for you, we will go with you and we will ask the questions. Or if you know, if you've got a doula, video call us the night before, we'll do a pep talk, we'll do a checklist of what you're going to ask, we'll make sure you don't forget anything, we'll make sure you don't have to do it alone. Take a notepad with it all written down so that you don't forget anything, right? Remember what we just said about informed consent? It is important, so important that you feel totally informed and that you keep asking until you feel like you have that information. And then when you've questioned it and you're satisfied that you have your why, then you ask what it's based on. You ask for the research. Okay, so you want me to take blood thinning medication because of XYZ risk factors and this medication will reduce the risk of XYZ. Where's the research that shows this in practice? Can you point me towards the studies with the actual numbers and the actual statistics which show it will improve my chances at a healthy pregnancy and birth and will keep my baby safer? because I want to read it for myself. I want to see if this is the most up-to-date, the most large-scale study on this topic, right? Simple as that. You're not being a nuisance. You have a right to this information. You have a right to know what they are basing this recommendation on. And you have a right to find out for yourself if there is any other information that can also inform your decision. And then if they're offering any sort of medication or procedure, ask for the patient information leaflet. 
All drugs will have a patient information leaflet that is often about 10 pages long. Things like side effects, um, contradictions, con- like anything. All of that stuff will be on the patient information leaflet. But often things that are given in hospital are given without the packaging. So you don't see the patient information leaflet. But they have it and they have a legal requirement to give you it. And again, you might feel like a nuisance, but it's so important for your health and for your baby that, and your baby that you read this and see what is in that medication and see what the side effects are for you. See if there are any long time considerations that need to be made before taking it. Will it affect breastfeeding? Will it affect the gut microbiome? Will it cause severe side effects? Will it take a toll on how you cope with the rest of pregnancy? All of that stuff. You have a right to see this information. So if they're saying, we recommend you, I don't know, yeah, go on blood thinners. You say, well, before I make that decision, please, can you get me the patient medication leaflet and can we go through it together so we can work out whether it's actually the best thing or whether there's a better option. And then when you've got your why, when you've got the research, when you've got your patient information leaflet, get it all written down in your notes. Get a paper trail of the conversation around the pros and cons so that instead of them saying like to do something with a bias, with a slant, you know, instead of that, your risk of postpartum hemorrhage doubles if you don't do what I'm saying. You have the actual stats written down. If I do this thing, my risk of postpartum hemorrhage increases from 0.1% to 0.15%. And I'm either happy with that or I'm not happy with that. And you make a decision on those actual statistics and not on some inflammatory statement, which makes things sound a certain way. Because once you ask people to write things down and to put their name to what they're telling you, suddenly it very much is the research and it is the statistics and it's not the, you need to do this or something bad will happen to your baby. Because <laughs> they realise that that's not on, that's not what they should be saying. So you can choose at this point what feels too risky for you. What medication do you want? What interventions do you want? Where do you draw the line? And there's no right or wrong like decision. If, if your risk of PPH increases from 0.1% to 0.15%, that might be too risky for you and you might want to accept the intervention and that is 100% fine. It just means that you're making the decision that is informed. You are giving that true informed consent. And you can ask for more time too. You can have this meeting and you can take all of that away and you can say, I'll see you next week. I'll make my decision by then. I'll see you tomorrow. I'll make my decision by then. I'll call up at an undetermined time when I've made my decision. Unless, you know, there's a true, true emergency, in which which case they'd probably be whisking you off for a cesarean. It would be a completely different conversation. Unless there is a true time-sensitive emergency, which is so rare, you can say, I'm not going to make my decision right now. I'm going to go home. I'm going to sleep on it. I'm going to work my way through everything with disgust. I'll call you up with my response. Or book me in an appointment in two days. Book me in an appointment next week and let's talk about it then. And then, you know, depending on how they react to that, you can go ahead and do one of three things. You can decide to carry on as you are. Maybe you've received really great, respectful care and you want to carry on. If that consultant or doctor or whoever it is, midwife, whoever you're talking to is not giving you respectful care at this point, you can then change consultant. You, you do not have to ever carry on with a consultant, a doctor, a midwife, a healthcare professional who is not serving you. You can change them at any point during your pregnancy. You just need to take it further and choose to change that person. Um, Or you can decline being high risk. You can completely decline this label. If you do not feel that this label at this point is serving you, you do not feel that you are more risky than the general population, which is what it's saying when it's saying you're high risk. It's saying that you're more risky than the general population. If you don't agree with that, if you think that you're having a low risk pregnancy and you do not want extra care, you do not want that consultant led care, you can decline it. You can go back to being midwife led at any point. No one ever knows that they can do this, but you can. You can decline 
anything. All care provided by the NHS is optional and you can opt out of any part of it. So if you no longer feel like you're being served by having this high risk label, you can opt out of the extra things that you are being recommended. And again, I'm not saying everyone should do this, understand why we need to give extra people extra care. And it's really great when it works really well. But if it's not working for you, you can opt out. If it's not working for you, but you really do want that extra care, change consultant, 100% change, change as many times as you need to until you find somebody who respects you and respects your choices. You have rights. Just because your pregnancy may or may not be more risky than what they deem is the norm, you know, maybe that's marginally more risky, maybe that's incredibly more risky, it doesn't matter. You're still a pregnant human being who is doing a wonderful, wonderful job of growing a human and deserves to be treated with respect and autonomy over their body. And I hope, I really, really hope that this has landed the way that I intended to it to. Because to reiterate, I'm not telling anybody to decline things for no reason, to opt out of things or anything like that. That's not it. I, I understand the need for people to receive specialised care if they need it or if they want it. And this care, when given well, is amazing. It can be life-saving and can massively, massively improve outcomes. If you need the extra care, I really, I really hope that you get it. I want it for you. I'm just here to remind you that whatever your needs are during pregnancy, you have a right to receive it in a way that feels respectful and in a way that you fully understand and that you feel in control of. Because you are, you are in control of what is done to you and what is given, what is given to you. And it it might it might feel hard when there's conflicting advice out there and sometimes it's going to feel like there's no clear-cut wins right you know if if there's for example side effects to a, a drug that are not great but that drug could help you the answer to that might feel tricky but that is where asking all of the questions and asking for the research asking for a second opinion asking for the alternatives is so helpful and tuning into your intuition too so important so important to tune into your intuition and trust your gut during pregnancy because your intuition is so high when you're carrying a baby so you know let that have a seat at the table too but it might feel tricky at times it, it might do but you've got this you truly have and as I said if you're not feeling cared for by your healthcare professionals then that's a them problem they're doing a bad job and not you and you need to get a new one and you need to write a letter of complaint if it's that bad. So that concludes this episode on high-risk pregnancy. And again, I really hope this has landed in the way that I intended. When I'm planning these episodes, I'm always like slightly nervous that it's going to land on the wrong ears and not come across in the way that I intend. So I really hope that it has landed in the right way and it has been helpful and interesting and given you some things to think about, some things to reflect on and hopefully can help you moving through appointments going forward. So I'm going to round it off there. Um, if you'd like to discuss any aspect of your pregnancy and birth in more detail, whether that's high risk, low risk, whatever it is, you can book in for a power hour with me, which is a one-off, one-hour session to get clarity on your circumstances for £50. I'll pop the info on that in the show notes. And remember... Whilst you're there, check out my online course too. If you have any more questions, come and hang out on Instagram or TikTok where I'm at the Dungaree Doula. And please let me know if you enjoyed the episode. Do be sure to check out the show notes for all the links too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do stick around, like, follow and subscribe or leave a little review if you don't mind because that's so very helpful too. Speak soon. See you next week. Bye.